Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill Smith, and this is a podcast about all of the dumb things that people will do for love. So welcome to episode 135. I don't like that. 135. You, 135. <laughs> I thought it was going to get fancy for a little bit, but it, you know, it just doesn't work. It just makes us sound really old, doesn't it? Like, 135. Ye old <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Jen, it's so good to hear your voice. Good to hear uh, your voice. How was your weekend? You actually got away this weekend. I did, and it's because I didn't mention it on the podcast, so I know. the curse didn't get me. <laughs> um, we had the best time. So my friend Kate turned 40. And, happy um, birthday, Kate. Happy birthday, Kate. We had like a girls' trip up in the mountains, and then we did the whole winery thing. But And it was so great because there, um, there were a few people there that I had never met before, like her sister and some like longtime friends. Yeah. And sometimes when you go to a new house with like people that you don't know, you're a little bit like, oh, are we going to get along? But they were just so amazing and hilarious oh, and good. fun. And um, just we just had the best time. And I forgot that, you know – it's always when I'm just with my friends, like my girlfriends, that I have the most joyful belly laugh, yeah. like ridiculous good time that it's yeah. like, why do I waste my time doing anything else? Right? You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. <laughs> I do. With anyone else. I should yes. just be with my good friends that are awesome and make me laugh. So right? we had the best time. I'm so happy your pictures looked amazing. Drank a lot. Just good. Saying. Good for uh, you. I didn't mean to. I did. <laughs> I mean, you kind of got to know when you're like sharing a house with for somebody's birthday and you're going to wineries that like I know. You know. Oh my god, but when I tell you it's so funny cuz I'm like, "Oh yeah, we partied and I drank a lot." I was asleep at like 9 o'clock. I right. think I <laughs> That's my favorite is like, let's go out early during the day. We're going to start. We're going to wind it up. We're going to be in bed by 930. Yeah. I woke up on, uh, we left Saturday morning, but I woke up on Saturday morning with like, um, just in jeans and a bra, (laughs) nothing else, missing an earring. And then when I finally found my shirt, it was covered in spaghetti sauce. And it was like, we had a good time. <laughs> but you do had a good weekend? I did, yeah. We just, uh, lots of like play dates, you know? It's like a real, um, just seeing seeing people we hadn't seen in a while and, um, and playing with kids kind of weekend, which was nice. It was really nice. That is. That's nice, too. Yeah, that's you know, nice, that's too. Nice I mean, too. I wasn't out cavorting, getting spaghetti all over my shirt and uh, passing out in my jeans, but, you know, it was fun. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I found my earrings, by the way. When I was on the way home, I got a text message uh, that said, whose earrings are these? <laughs> <laughs> they were, like, up on the chandeliers. <laughs> I don't know where she found them, but she found them. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Kate. Um, So, and happy birthday. Um, Oh, quick announcement before we get into cookies. Um, Yeah. Next Saturday, February 12th, Sally and I will be in Asheville, North Carolina at the Asheville Beauty Academy. 
Yeah. Um, it sounds like it's a beauty academy. It's not. It's actually a club. Yeah. So um, we will be there doing stand-up. But you can come watch us, say hi, hang out with us afterwards because we got nothing else to do. And also, um, I'm bringing with me um, Dustin Harder, the vegan roadie. So mm-hmm. a little celebrity in the um, – celebrity sighting in the audience right we so, we only roll with the coolest yeah. entourage <laughs> you guys uh, can talk loudly about vegan restaurants with dustin we'll do book signings <laughs> and sign your cookbooks while sally and i are trying to tell jokes yes please yes please That's <laughs> the plan. so we will see you uh next saturday Asheville, if you're in town yes february 12th um, yes um, dude, quickies. Quickies. Let's do it. All right, I'm first. Okay. Okay, so I got my information from CTV News article by Josh Pringle. And remember how last week you were like, I'm going to do a Sally special because it has nothing to do with love. And now you're going to do one? And now I'm going to do one. Ben okay. sent this to me and he was like, this is so funny. It's like right up your alley. He's like, but maybe it's like so dumb you love it i don't know Uh (laughs) it's like oh yep there we go (laughs) that's my end so okay so residents in ottawa were shocked as they enjoyed a peaceful sunday afternoon they all live all of these people live on homes that back up to the radu river um there were like kids playing outside playing ice hockey outside on the ice like on the river because they're canadian um Uh and it's this really wide river so you can, I'll, I'll post a video. You can see this picture, but they're like out on the ice. And then all of a sudden they see, you see this yellow car racing past on the fucking river. Because like oh the river, God. like the river Redu was. Redu sounds like a redoubt. <laughs> I was waiting for the perfect opportunity within this story to say that. And you nailed it. The opportunity <laughs> presented itself. Oh, it's going to present itself again. <laughs> But red jail <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a redoubt. Right, <laughs> sounds ridiculous. Uh, so <laughs> the river was frozen, right? So that's why the car could be on it. But it wasn't. It's not like a thing people do. Like that's. I was confused about. I was like, is this just like a Canadian thing? <laughs> no, uh-huh. it's this. Some lady had gotten in her car on the river and was driving like. So fast on the river. And so uh, this man named Sasha Guerra said his kids were playing outside when the car went by. He said, you don't expect your kids to have to watch out for cars zipping down the frozen river. Essentially, the kids were just playing out in the backyard hockey rink, as Canadians do. And while they were skating, they saw this yellow Subaru kind of zipping down the river and they were totally caught by surprise. So it's not... Shocking that several minutes later, that same yellow car went crashing through the ice oh, God, yeah. on the south end of the river. So neighbors saw this happen and they heard it and then they came out and they then they saw the car's driver climb out of the car and on top of the vehicle as it's like slowly sinking into the frozen water. And so, and they, you know, they like rushed to rescue her. Like a witness said, it was amazing. He was like, one of our neighbors, Rob Korberg, had a rope that he went and got and another one had a kayak and so they tied the rope to the kayak and they kind of like pushed it out to her like over the ice as like the car is sinking and the woman then got on top of the kayak and they pulled her back in by the rope and he said it's like everything worked out perfectly she got in the kayak pulled her in and as soon as we pulled her in the car went under fully like 
it's like immediately as she got on the kayak, the car just completely sank. So, but as the residents were preparing for this like dangerous rescue, there's a this video of the woman as she like calmly steps onto the top of the car. And as she's waiting for the kayak, she just pulls out her phone and takes a selfie of herself and oh her car god. sinking into it. <gasps> so great. Oh my god, this is like idiocracy. Yes. Oh yes. my god. We're <laughs> so a resident, a woman named Linda Douglas, took a picture of this woman who has not been named taking the selfie. She posted it with a caption that said she captured the moment with a selfie while pe- people hurried and worried to help her. And then she had put the face plan emoji. So after this woman was rescued, she was still like completely unfazed by the ordeal. And you can see like as she's like standing on the bank, kind of like looking out, she's like leaning towards the um, like towards the river. And he's like, please don't go towards the car please come closer because of course like the car went under and now they're worried like the I, oh, the rest of the ice is gonna crack um the woman wasn't hurt and when emts came to the scene she refused medical treatment oh my apparently, god apparently she said to one of the emts i'd do that again <laughs> so there's for no- the picture for, for the, the gram. gram. Oh uh, so the car, the woman driving the car was charged with one count of da- dangerous operation of motor vehicle. The police said the vehicle is still in the river and composes this dangerous hazard for curious onlookers venturing out to the ice. This portion of the river has thin ice compared to other areas of the river. Ice conditions at this time of the year can be unpredictable. The Ottawa Police Service would like to remind residents to stay off the ice and remember no ice is safe ice. <laughs> Also, (laughs) ice, ice, baby. Too cold, too cold. (laughs) There you go. Is that – wait, where are you going to tie it into love? I don't know. I just really loved that this woman – Okay, you loved – she loved – She – it's all about self-love. So much. She. Self-love. Self-love. Isn't that – You did it. You did it. So ridiculous. (laughs) Thank you. Great job. Um, that is so ridiculous. Oh my god! It just uh, I can't wait for you to see the actually. picture. It's oh yeah, it's just like wh- what? Why is that your instinct? And oh, also, she being... had to be so drunk, right? Yeah. Was she old or young? Like I can't young, ma- young. Her parents must be so pissed. I mean, she looks Don't you like think? in. I mean, yes, she looks like, but she looks like an adult, not like a teenager or anything. That's a good story, though. Yeah. I love that you told that story and that I was able to say, (laughs) we don't. I love that, too. That Um, made me very happy. Good. (laughs) You Um, know I love some wordplay, Jen. You know I I know. Oh, speaking of which, I wasn't – see, you just – I wasn't even going to do this quickie, but I'm going to just – it's not – it's a really short quickie, so I'll just say it because you just said – that is um but did you know that wordle have you played wordle of course jen of course yeah i love wordle Um, i haven't had the chance to play it yet because i'm busy sally okay (laughs) my life i'm kidding no i really want to i just haven't had a chance but did you know that it's actually a love story what wordle yeah so okay so this um quickie really quick quickie came from i'm gonna do another one this is just a side quickie um (laughs) is from an article for people.com written by stephanie winger but apparently the guy that 
Josh Wardle, Wardle, uh-huh. W-A-R-D-L-E, who created the game. He's a software engineer. He actually created the game not to make money or for any other reason other than because his partner, Palak Shah, is a fan of the New York Times cro- crossword puzzle and spelling bee. Yeah. And he built the game because he thought that Palak would love it. So, yeah. So then um, I guess he built the first iteration of the game in 2013 and nothing really came of the game. Um, And then until the couple found themselves, um, you know, killing time during the COVID pandemic, then it just the game just kind of took off. And so um, Palak said, it's really sweet. This is definitely how Josh shows his love. Which is like a, such a lovely, specific yeah. way to show your love from someone is to actually create a game for them to play. Just to be like, I know you would like this. You would yeah. enjoy it. And then did you know that then he sold it to the New York Times for like yes. a million, million yeah, dollars? Yeah, it seven figures. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And Which whole, is great. Yeah, it is great. Yeah, that's a good way to show your love. Yeah. <laughs> Many. But anyway, um, but – they people, I guess, love the game just because I, I like. I don't know a lot about the game, but I guess because it's it's a totally free, yeah. And it's not trying to sell you anything. It's not trying to like make you look at ads. It's not trying to do anything other than just be a fun game to play. And it's, um, you know, it's like so many apps are. They just want you to stay on the app and they want it to be addictive. And this right. you can only play one word a day. Like it's only once a day. That's it. You they and they're like, all right, the next one will come out in the morning. So that's so goodbye. cool. Yeah. So I and don't know what's going to happen when the New York Times takes it over, but um, but I'm happy for him. Yeah, and Palak helps Josh every day uh, pick what the word's going to be. So it's Aww. something they do together. Isn't that so sweet? That is really sweet. I love it. I shouldn't even do another quickie. No, don't do another quickie. Save it. Save it. Yeah. Okay, I'll save it. That was a good one. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. Are you ready for a wild story? I am so ready for a wild story. Awesome. This one is fun. I got my information from a big article in GQ by David Kushner um, from an interview on KNKX Public Radio by Jennifer Wing, from The Sportsman by Ross Brown, from FBI.gov, from USA Today by Martin Rogers. Okay. On November 3rd, 2008, Emily Curcio got a call she wasn't expecting, but that didn't really surprise her. It was the police. They told her they had arrested her husband, Anthony, in a Target parking lot. And Emily had had a bad feeling for months that something was going on with Anthony. He had had a history with drugs, and she recently had asked him to leave the home because he'd been acting so erratic, and she didn't want him around their children. But the tale that the police told her had nothing to do with drugs. It was something that she could have never imagined her husband was capable of. He had nearly committed the perfect crime. So. Emily first met Anthony Curcio in high school in Monroe, Washington, which is a town of about 16,000 people, about 30 miles northeast of, northeast of Seattle. Anthony's family was like kind of a big deal in this small town. His family owned a successful landscaping company, and his dad had been a star wide receiver at the University of Iowa. And actually, his grandma, his mom, and his older sister had Were all- also wide receivers. <laughs> Uh huh. Yep. That's it. <laughs> uh, they had all been 
homecoming queens at the high school. Ooh. Yeah. So Anthony, he idealized his dad. And by the time he got to high school, he too was like an all-star wide receiver on the football team. He was a point guard on the basketball team. And his junior year, he started dating Emily, who was like this sweet, brown-haired, blue-eyed captain of the cheerleading squad. And the two together just seemed like this unstoppable golden couple. Um, After graduation, Anthony's dream came true. He got a scholarship to play football at the University of Iowa, which was his dad's alma mater. And Emily decided to go to Washington State University, which was close by so that she could be close to Anthony. But pretty soon, everything kind of came crashing down. Anthony was injured during a spring practice. He tore his ACL and doctors prescribed him Vicodin. Yeah, so while he was also, unable to – Ooh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> ooh, do you have any extra? <laughs> do you um, need all of them? <laughs> uh, joking, my niece Sophia that listens to this podcast. <laughs> I'm joking. It's a joke. It's a joke. Um, so while he was, like, recovering and he was unable to practice because of his inner- injury, he started partying more. I mean, he was, you know, a freshman in college with his – he was an attorney. He started skipping classes. And, like, everything just kind of snowballed. And pretty soon he lost his spot on the football team. And he said, life went on for everyone but me. All of my success Aww. in life had revolved around this game. Now that I was injured, I was nothing. So, you know, he lost his spot on the team, and without football, he felt like there was nothing at University of Iowa for him. So he moved, he transferred to Washington State to be with Emily. Um, But soon his prescription to Vicodin had run out, and he didn't even realize that he was addicted, but he went through this massive withdrawal. He was like vomiting, he had cramps, insomnia, diarrhea. He said he had never felt anything like that, like not even the pain of the ACL injury. So he had this week of like sleepless nights and he just was like got to the point where he could no longer take it. So he decided that he needed to get more pills and he was going to do whatever it took. So one night when he was like just in this like crazy insomniac you know, haze, he took off his shoe and sock from his left foot where he had torn his ACL and he just stood next to an oak coffee table in his apartment and just started kicking it. Uh-huh. And he like kicked and kicked and kicked until it says the veins oh, began to split. God. Oh, God. Yeah. Ugh. But the school doctor like refused to give him anything stronger than ibuprofen. And so he was like just so desperate. He started forging faked prescriptions and he got was buying pills on the street. And so almost overnight, he said he was like popping more than 30 pills a day. Oh, geez. So eventually it caught up to him and he came clean to Emily and she stuck by him and she helped him get into rehab. And so he went to rehab over the summer. And when he got out, um, they picked right up where they left off and they ended up staying together. And like right after graduation, like at her house in front of her family, Anthony got down on one knee and proposed. So the two got married. They bought a house back in their hometown of Monroe. Anthony got his realtor's license and started flipping houses. And this was in 2004. So it was like the height of the real estate boom. You know, and he was like back in his hometown. He was like the big man. So he had all of these people who knew him and knew his family. Um, and he was doing really well. Like his first his um, his first deal, he made $25,000 flipping ho- a house. On his second one, he made $160,000. Wow. And so he and Emily moved into this 4,000 square foot house, like right on the lake. Um, and they had their first daughter. 
But before long, he was in over his head again. He bought this house that he thought, oh, it's going to take $50,000 to fix up, but it ended up costing $150,000. And by late 2007, the housing market had crashed. And so Anthony was like, just, he was like underwater, right? And so he started taking drugs again. He started doing pills. He started doing cocaine to so he could stay up late renovating properties, but he just couldn't keep up enough to like avoid foreclosure. So he went to like all of these friends that he thought, you know, oh, I know everybody in this town for loans, but nobody would help him. He soon, like he had only $20 in his bank account. Um, He was at the point where he was like selling his tools and his possessions and both he and Emily's cars had been repossessed and they were also about to lose their house. And Emily was pregnant with their second daughter and she was like almost ready to give birth. So there was one morning in the midst of like all of this chaos that he sat in a car that he had borrowed from a friend because his had been repossessed. And he was in the parking lot of a Bank of America and he was just trying to figure out what to do with his life. And that is when he saw an armored car come up. And so when he got home, he Googled armored truck robbery. And he said that he actually didn't think of it like oh, this is something I'm going to do. But he was just kind of desperate for a solution to his money problems. He felt like he had left his family down. He had, you know, he had this idea of himself as a hero and he obviously was not that. And he was, you know, I mean, he was, he was drinking, he was doing drugs. He was like deep in this addiction. So he started Googling truck robberies some more. And the more he researched it, the more real this idea became. And as the idea became real, it started to feel like it was the only way out. And so soon he went from thinking about it to planning it. And he was, you know, he was already an addict. And so planning the armored car heist became like another addiction. Wow. So late at night, while Emily and their young daughter slept, he would plan his scheme. He learned everything he could about Brink's trucks and about their delivery drivers, their schedules. Um, He read all about other armored car robberies. Um, He went over and over a plan in his head. He picked a location for the heist. He picked the bank on the Bank of America where he had sat and seen the armored car the first time. Um, He ended up doing a few dry runs to work out the details. And then he was finally ready. So the morning of the robbery, Tuesday, September 30th, 2008, there were a dozen men waited outside a strip mall in Monroe. These men had all answered the same Craigslist ad for work. They had been told to gather in this exact spot, which was like right between a jack-in-the-box and the Bank of America at 11 a.m. They were all told that it was a landscaping job that would entail nine days of work at $28.50 an hour, which, you know, this was right when the market crashed, so everybody was looking for work. So the post um, on Craigslist claimed to be from an organization called Clean Monroe Beautification Project, and it said, all workers must purchase safety glasses or the equivalent eye protection, a ventilator mask, yellow safety vest, long sleeves, and no shorts, along with proper foot protection. And so then after they would apply, he they would Each man got an email from the supervisor telling them to show up wearing a blue shirt. And in the email that they got, it said, if the project manager isn't there right on time, don't leave. So all these men who had responded to this ad are gathered right by this Bank of America. 
um, waiting for the supervisor to come up. And but there was one landscaper who was had looked like exactly as all they all were. Um, and he was already working. He had been there since before the other people arrived. He was like killing weeds outside of the Jack in the box. Um, and he continued working on the lawn until exactly 1105 when a Brinks truck rolled up to the bank of America branch next door. And as the driver got out and started to wheel the bags of cash to the bank, that landscaper, Obviously, it was Anthony Curcio. Wow. Stopped working, ran to the truck, and he was only a few paces from the guard when he fired enough pepper spray to like stun. They said it was enough to stun a thousand pound grizzly bear. And so the guard like clawed at his eyes in pain, and Anthony just grabbed the bags, which contained $400,000 in cash, and sprinted into the nearby woods. From start to finish, it took about 30 seconds. So police arrive a few minutes later, and they are greeted by a dozen men milling around dressed exactly as their suspect was described. They're all wearing the exact same blue shirt, vest, mask, face mask, eye, eye thing. So... They're like, we have no idea who, which one of you it is. Um, oh, so they, wow, that right? Is so smart. Yeah. Yeah. So they use, they ended up bringing in um, canine, like officers, dogs, um, to track the scent of where, where like, where Anthony had last been seen. And they found a trail of discarded items a blue cap, a long brown wig, a white particle mask, and sunglasses. Um, And the path stopped at the edge of this creek, which was like this very narrow stream that was less than two feet deep. And after an hour of searching, searching, the helicopters like found nothing. They couldn't find anyone. Um, One of the patrol officers ended up spotting something floating in the water about 200 yards downstream. And when they raced to go see it, they found a yellow and black inner tube that had a picture of a bee on it. And then a few feet away, they found a blue shirt and a two-way radio that had been tossed on the creek's bank. So, but Anthony was nowhere to be found because of course, police had no idea he had committed the crime at the time. But this in the story blew up. You know, this is this like crazy bank heist. It's like the Thomas Crown Affair inspired bank heist. And so um, it was all over the news. A local radio station named him D.B. Tuber in reference to D.B. Cooper. Mm -hmm. And people were like all excited because they're like, this is like a Hollywood heist. So it turns out after Anthony had fled with the money, he had gone down to this creek and he had gotten in an inner tube that he had stashed there and it was and floated down under a bridge to where he had run this like long cable up the steep creek so he could pull himself in the bag, bags of money up to the banks. So police were like, that was actually like, if he had tried to get away in a car, they would have immediately tracked him because they would have been able to see the car or, you know, spot it in a helicopter. But because he was in this dream, they couldn't find him or track him. So he had then walked up the bank of the river and he had gone into this um, company called Windmere Real Estate and he chatted up this young receptionist and was like, hey, can I use your phone? My cell phone died. And she like thought nothing of it because she knew Anthony. I mean, she knew of him. He was like, you know, the young, good looking man and the son of a rich family. And so he thanked her politely. He called a friend who came and picked him up and picked up the bag of money. And it turns out this real estate company where he used the phone was right next door to the police station. 
Oh, my God. Yeah. So the friend who picked Anthony up took him to a hotel where another friend was waiting. They threw all of the money on the bed and started counting it, and they couldn't believe how much they got. They thought they were going to get as – like the most they would get would be $200,000. But so he – stashed the money. He ended up giving it to one of his friends who put it in a their safe. But he got home in time to give his daughter a bath. And like Emily had seen the robbery news on, you know, on the news, but she's like didn't think anything of it. And so police, meanwhile, were like stumped. They were able to swipe a bit of like DNA from the mask, but they didn't have anything to match it to. So they kept looking at this like surveillance tape from Bank of America and All they could tell was that it seemed to be like a young guy, around six feet tall, white, but they couldn't, anything after that, they couldn't figure out. So then they got a break. A few days after the robbery, a patrol sergeant was like, hey, I actually had like a really weird visit a couple weeks ago. This city worker named Randy um, Osh said that he had been approached by a homeless guy a few weeks earlier. And that guy had found a disguise and a radio near the bank. And they were like, wait, what? And he was like, yeah. He's like, I don't know the guy's name. He has a beard, I think, and a dog. So police went looking for this homeless guy with a beard and a dog. And after like a lot of dead ends, they finally found him. So they they found this guy, like he was outside a white and blue tent, um, like under an overpass with a dog. And they said that the man looked up at them from where he was doing a crossword puzzle and was like, it's about time you got here. So the man's name was Alan Dean. And apparently he had been like panhandling in the mall near the Bank of America earlier that month when he spotted a radio behind a dumpster. And he just picked it up and then he saw a bunch of other stuff. He saw a particle mask, a wig, sunglasses, a can of mace. And he was just like, I know this is no good. He had been convicted of a felony and he was like, I know this is like a disguise and I don't want anything to do with it. He was like, I don't want, if my fingerprints are on this and this was used for a crime, like I don't want this turning up and me going to jail. So he took all of the stuff and he went up to that sewer worker and was like, I I need, somebody needs to call the police. Can you call the police for me? And so that's when the guy went to the cops. So the homeless guy, Dean, thought that like that was kind of it. He was like, I did my civic duty. Now I'm done. But then he sees a silver SUV pull up behind the dumpster a bit later and a young guy get out to retrieve the stuff. And Alan Dean was like, hey, dude, I wouldn't mess with that stuff. I called the police. They're coming to pick it up. And the guy was like, wait, why would you do that? And he was like, well, it's obviously for no good. So it turns out that was, of course, Anthony Curso. And he had put the stuff there as like just to like test out like he when he was doing his dry runs. But that was all before the robbery. Does that make sense? Like yeah. he had, he had stashed a bunch of this stuff there, like beforehand, um, and this was all like a few weeks before the robbery. So wow. when he left, Alan Dean wrote down his license plate, and then when the police came and found him, he gave the license plate to the police. Police ran the plates, and it was registered to Emily Curcio. So oh, wow. So now they have DNA 
um, but they can't match it yet. And they have a license plate, but they feel like they need more evidence. Um, apparently somebody, one of the police officers had went to high school with Anthony. And when they, that officer looked at the video, he was like, yeah, that could be Anthony. Like, I don't know that it is just his body type, etc. So, so they were like trying to figure out some way to find a DNA sample so they could match it to the particle mask or try to bust him like spending a bunch of money. But by the time they were ready to catch up with Anthony, he was gone because right after the robbery, Anthony had like tried to play it cool with Emily, but she could feel that something was wrong. You know, she'd had just had a baby and at night while she was nursing, Anthony would slip away and be like talking irritably, like on the phone with someone. And she got angry and she accused him of being on drugs again. And he was like, how dare you accuse me? And she was like, get out. I don't want you around my kids. And so he left and he went to Vegas because he was a douchebag. Um, he took about $30,000 of the money. That's where they all go. That's where they all go. They all go to Vegas. Yep. So he took $30,000 of money. He drove to Vegas with his buddies and a woman who was described in one article as his teenage mistress. But I, that was all, that was about <laughs> all I read about her. Mm. Um, and he rented rooms at the Palms. He hired a guide for $2,500 a night to get them into all the cool clubs. They ended up going to a party for Jessica Simpson's, Simpson's single release. Oh, <laughs> I bet you would really? appreciate that. Yeah. That's so funny. And then they like partied all night. He said at one point, he was like, I looked out the window and I thought out of all these people out there, I took a risk that only one in a few million would be willing to take. So he's drunk, he's high, and he's like, everybody watch me. And so in the middle of the room was like a coffee table, and he was like, I bet I can clear that in one jump. And so he backs up, and he runs and jump, and then, of course, he comes like crashing down right on the middle of it, and he broke his wrist and his elbow. Out. Yeah, so he came back home to, to Monroe after that, and Emily took him back. She was like – didn't really know what else to do. She asked him, like, what happened to his arm? He was like, I hurt myself playing basketball. He told her, he was like, everything's going to be okay now. I did a real estate deal. I came into a lot of cash. Like, all of our money problems are going to be okay. And she just kind of chose to believe him. And then on November 3rd, 2008, about a month after the robbery, he drove his new Range Rover that he purchased under a friend's name to the parking lot of a Target in Monroe. He had arranged to drop off some money with a friend, um, $17,000 in cash. But as he got out of the car, police swarmed him. Apparently not long before, police had found a Gatorade bottle that he tossed out of his car that had tobacco like dip in it. And they got it and they matched his DNA. So it was enough to arrest him. They matched it to the mask that he discarded from the heist. So... He got out of the car. He was on his hands and knees. And apparently, as they were, like, arresting him, he was like, this is slander. Do you know who my parents are? Oh, my God. (sighs) Yeah. So $220,000 of the stolen money was found right after his arrest. Apparently, one of the buddies who had helped him came forward and cooperated with the police. Um, And he had – because he had given that money to put in the guy's safe – On May 5th, 2009, Anthony pled guilty and was sentenced to six years in prison. He was 29 years old. 
Emily was, of course, stunned and angry and hurt, but she didn't leave him. So for a while after he got arrested, she was out of work and on food stamps, but eventually she got a job in Seattle with this international asset management company. Um, But because of their kids, you know, she had that brand new baby and a young daughter. She kind of kept the door open. And Emily says it took about a year and a half into Anthony's sentence for him to really take full responsibility for what he'd done to his family. And she said that that was when he really got clean. He finally confessed everything to Emily. He told her that not only had he committed this crime, but he had been committing, he had committed multiple crimes, like not other bank robberies, but they don't exactly say what. I'm just guessing like it has to do with stealing drugs, stealing money. He told her about the full extent of his drug use, and he told her that he had been cheating on her pretty much through their whole marriage. Oh, man. Yeah. So she said she had no clue about any of this. She was like, I was in denial. You know, we met when we were teenagers and she said, I kept drawing lines in the sand and then he always had an excuse and I always just wanted to believe him. And she said, I just didn't want to know the truth. And she said that once he got arrested, she said she was on a truth crusade. And so he confessed basically everything to her. And so for about a year after he confessed, they barely talked. She would let him talk to the kids, but that was it. She started going to recovery group, which helped her through some of this. Um, And she said the only reason she hadn't divorced him right when he got arrested is that she was like, I didn't really see the rush. (laughs) She said I had so much to deal with. He was going to be in jail for a long time. And then she said she was kind of glad she didn't because two years before he was released, he ended up serving five years total. But Emily said she started to see a change in Anthony. Um, apparently he was in solitary for like seven months. And he said when he got out, he was finally so broken down that the only thing he wanted in his life was a second chance from his family. So Emily gave it to him. When he was released in 2013, she didn't let him go back into the home, but he went to live in a halfway house and then he got his own apartment. But eventually after a year, she allowed him to move back in with the family And now she says that he has become the kind of father and husband she always thought that he had it in him to be. She says that like they're all about today. She said, today we're still married. Today I want to be in a relationship with him. And today I'm still in love with him. Since he got out, he's been working with youth and giving presentation regarding um, drug abuse. And he speaks at middle schools, high schools, universities all across the U.S. He actually has wrote a book called Heist and High. And he has written a series of children's book. His book, The Boy Who Never Gave Up, was actually picked for a school reading program, which led to like two best-selling children's books. Wow. Yeah. So Emily says she's glad she stuck it out. She said, because today their life is the life she envisioned when she was 18 years old and knew that he was the man she wanted to marry. She said, for me, him committing the robbery, his arrest was like divine intervention because it was like God was saying, you guys can't do this and I'm going to put an end to this for you. And I'm, I'm so grateful. I'm going to help you commit a crime. I'm going to help you commit a crime. A felony. <laughs> because God wants you to be together and have a good life. Well, they say he works in mysterious ways, so. I say that's a redoubt. (laughs) (laughs) Redoubt. I don't know that God, I don't plan the heist per se, but I, 
I do really like their love story. Like, meaning I like that they it ended up on a positive note and that yeah. he changed his life around and that they're happy. I mean, yeah. that makes me happy that they're happy and yeah. things are positive and good. Yeah. But I, I wouldn't say that it's a good thing that that happened. <laughs> no, I wouldn't either. Yeah. So. Yeah. Anyway, that's my wild story. Wow, that is crazy a wild bank heist. story. That had a real, really wild twist at the end. Yeah, there did you go. not see it ending with love. I mean, how many of our crazy stories end up with love? None of them. Mostly, None they them. just end up with someone dead. No. <laughs> well, I've got news for you because my love story is going to end with the murder. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. Hey, Sally. Hey, Jen. Are you ready for a love story? Yeah, ma'am. I'm ready. This is the most, like, down-home apple pie love story (laughs) we've had in a long time. Now, I don't know if they have these accents. Nope, they're not because they're from Minnesota. (laughs) So they would have different accents. (laughs) Can you do a Minnesota accent? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, that's good. Good? Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> hey, I love an accent. You love um, an accent. So this came, this story came from an article for dglobe.com, and it was written by Jane Turpin Moore. Uh, but it is about a couple that have been together for 70 years. Oh. John and Pearl Sheepstra met during Korean conflict when um, – John, who is from Worthington, was stationed in the 135th Infantry in the 47th Division in the U.S. Army's Fort Rucker in Alabama. So Pearl was 19 at the time. Her maiden name was Robin, Pearl Robin, and she lived in a um, tiny town in Ogilvie, Minnesota. Okay. And so her and her friend decided to go have a little adventure. They decided to go down to a military post in the South because her her cousin's husband was in the service there and he wanted her to come down and she wanted Pearl to come with her in the car. Okay. So, yeah. She didn't want to drive alone. So yeah. Pearl actually quit her job and then drove with her, which is so something That's I would have done such a 19. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would just want me to drive like... down to Alabama. I quit. <laughs> no drive, yeah. no, we're no call, no show. <laughs> yeah, no call, no show. And so on one of their first nights there in Alabama, they went roller skating. And when she was roller skating is when she met John. Oh, and so I know <laughs> on a roller skate date, he asked her to skate because that's how they used to do it. Do you remember that in like middle school? Uh, yeah, I when yeah, I was elementary in school, fourth grade, third grade, we lived like right by a roller skating rink and we went roller skating all the time. And I just remember being like, wanting to learn to backwards skate because you had to learn to backwards skate for someone to ask you to skate with them to like couple skate oh man thank god i didn't go to your school (laughs) but i never did (laughs) i never did learn to backwards skate god i just remember like always like wishing that somebody would ask me to skate and wishing that somebody would ask me to skate and then my friend george george treglia asked me to skate and i was like no Now you, George. <laughs> he was very nice. I was just like, I was not good at skating. It was like, yeah. I wanted the, I wanted to skate, but in my head, it was all a fantasy. I didn't want to actually do it because I knew I would, I was so bad. I fell like every five seconds. 
so they skated together and then they quickly uh, hit it off. Did they share and a milkshake? So, so the next thing. <laughs> no, but they did find out when they got uh, became more well acquainted that they um, they both belonged to the Christian Reformed Church. Aww. And he was Dutch and she was Dutch. <laughs> what? So she thought, well, he must not be too bad of a guy then, you know? Uh-huh. It's just... <laughs> Those were her prerequisites. And yeah. so, um, so she was um, planning on staying in Alabama and working there and uh, living there indefinitely. But because it was an army base, apparently all the jobs had been taken uh, from all the women who's, who were there with their husbands. So there was like no local jobs on oh, the market right. because gotcha. of that. So she ended up only being able to stay there for like a couple of months. But in those couple of months, that's when they realized that they wanted to still be together, even with her in Minnesota. So she yeah. went, went back to Ogilvy. She lived with her parents and her four brothers, and they would just write letters to each other all the time, which is so sweet. Yeah, and then very sweet. Then one day, John came up to Ogilvy and proposed to her. Her brothers apparently loved him too. And so on December 28, 1951, at the Christian Reformed Church in Ogilvy, the Sheepstras were married and they vowed to love, honor, and cherish each other as husband and wife. And she was 20 years old at the time and he was 23. So they were pretty young. So then they ended up going back to Alabama and they stayed in Alabama until John was honorably discharged. So after after that, they ended up... um, renting farming land about four miles north of Bigelow. I guess that's in Alabama. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they quickly settled into farm life, which is, must be so hard. Yeah. So I don't want to do anything when I wake up in the morning. Apparently the house was super small. Pearl said we had our first baby in that little house and she had to sleep on the couch because there was only one bedroom. That doesn't sound safe, Pearl. <laughs> Maybe Pearl slept on the couch. Yeah. It says she said she, like her daughter had, but so they also had no indoor plumbing. There was an outhouse and a pump that provided the water. She says it wasn't easy, but we didn't think it was that bad. We thought it was just fine. Then after a year or so, they ended up renting a different farm four miles further north. Then a few years later, apparently a neighbor from across the street came across the road, came over and asked them if they wanted to buy the farm. And so then they ended up buying the farm and they lived on it for 53 years. Wow. Yeah. So it was in Alabama. I'm sorry. This was in Worthington, which is in Minnesota. So which is located along Nystrom Avenue West. Do you know where that is? Do you know anything about Minnesota? Um, nope. I don't. No. So I mean, I've been there a couple times to do comedy. Yeah. But no. no, I know they're really nice people. They're really nice. <laughs> Minneapolis is cool. Yeah, it is cool. So they um, lived in the farm for 53 years and they ended up having three girls and three boys, which is a lot of kids. So <laughs> apparently they had three girls, Sandra, Deborah, and Patricia, and then they wanted to have one boy and they said oh good and so then they had their fourth which was a boy and they thought that they were good they had their four kids they had the girls they had boys and then seven years later she ended up getting pregnant with twins dang (laughs) and pearl said she's like damn you (laughs) you did this to me well pearl said that was quite a big surprise (laughs) oh my is what she said and so with their but if it's the lord Lord works in mysterious ways. 
Sure does. Sure does. Sometimes it's, you know, twin seven years later, and sometimes it's a bank robbery. You never know. Right? <laughs> so, uh, it, and um, between their six children, they now have 17 grandchildren. And she said more great grandchildren than she can, that they can count. <laughs> they talk about their time on the farm and said the reason that they were such a successful couple is that they they worked hard together as a team. And she said we had cows that they we milked by hand. I remember we take a quart of milk and put it in the tank to keep it cold because we didn't have a refrigerator. And then um and then in 1960s when they first got an indoor bathroom, wow. and Pearl said indoor plumbing. Now isn't that a blessing? <laughs> when I, I my <laughs> grandma told me, oh man, I'm not going to remember what or my grandpa was in, but when he came back, she's like, when he came back from the war, he went to work building houses. They lived in this teeny tiny little log cabin with no running water, no bathroom in like back in Mississippi. And he started like building houses in um for like a company in Memphis, Tennessee. And then he ended up, he was like finally had saved up enough money to build a house for the family. It was this teeny tiny little house. And oh, she yeah. was like, and it felt like a palace to me because it was the first time she had had indoor plumbing. Indoor plumbing, yeah. And this was like after she was married and had kids. Isn't that crazy? Yes. Yeah. She said that they used to have to carry out the pot from under the bed every morning. She said, these are the good days, I guess, yeah. when she had indoor plumbing. <laughs> you know, between uh, farming and raising their family, they made time for weekly church attendance, mm-hmm. and they liked to um, play cards and square dance. They were members of the Turkey Trotter Square Dance for over 30 <laughs> years. Oh, I love it. I Isn't love that it so sweet? much. Yes. And they would pull their camper with their pickup truck and go camping and take camping trips to parks and lakes in Minnesota. And so she's also she was also known for her cooking and she cooked at Prairie House and also at the Worthington Sale Barn. And oh. she said ladies who worked in town liked to come in for breakfast because they made all kinds of different jams, crepe, raspberry, strawberry, all the good guys. <laughs> and they loved having jam and toast before they went to work in the morning. Okay, now I'm like I'm not making fun of them. I'm just like this is just so down home and wholesome that it's I'm just like, so why are we sweet. all such pieces of shit? You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Let's like, why don't we all jam just and be square like, dance? Girl, I know it could be that easy. Why are we messing life up with everything else? <laughs> why are we doing this so podcast? Hard. I don't know. Let's Pee make jam. Woods and make jam. God damn it. Um, Pearl. She knows know. what's up. So they just celebrated this late December, their 70th anniversary with cake and ice cream after a church service. And then they had Pearl's 90th birthday in August, where they had an open house and a large family gathering. Um, And she said that was a big deal, too. It was really fun. And they said that the key to sticking together for 70 years is, is hard work humor, compromise. Pearl said you have to give in now and then in order to make everything work. And that goes both ways. And John agreed. And he said, there's a little give and take in this thing, you know? Oh, um, so, so they seem like they have just the greatest, easiest life. Jen, that is sweet right? as pie. I knew. I, I just feel like we just needed to hear a story that was just sunshine and rainbows and seven it. different kinds of jam. 
Oh, you took us right to Happy Town. Yeah. That's amazing. You know, let that be a remembrance. <laughs> we don't need the internet. We except for when inter- we're recording this podcast. And we need it for you guys to listen to the podcast. So we need the internet. But Yeah, but I like I, all we the need time. it for work. We mostly need jam. <laughs> <laughs> I mostly need jam in my mornings. And square dancing in my evenings. Yeah, we probably just need jam and toast and square dancing. The turkey trotters. I wonder if they still exist. <laughs> oh, I hope so. <laughs> I love it. Can you imagine what the t-shirts must be like? I can, yes. From the turkey trotters. Let's try to look it up. With the internet. Well, no, oh. with our minds. Yeah. Um, well, I love that. Uh, let's do something dumb and something we love. Okay. Okay, this is something dumb and something I love. Do you remember you did that story about a challenge of people who to give up the internet? Oh, right. In the evenings oh, for yeah, 30 days? that should be happening now. I'm a terrible follow-up. Terrible I should, follow-up. I should be following. <laughs> well, Ben and I are trying it. I mean, we did not do it. Trying really? to get money from or whatever. I can't remember. Was it Kahlua? Kahlua, yeah. Um, I mean, with some like caveats, like we just... I mean, I think we're just like, man, we're doing a lot of like watching TV every right. night, right? Which is fine. I love TV. He loves TV. I love pizza. He loves pizza. Uh, but, you know, we just kind of were like, we also have a lot of other things we'd like to do, like read books. And we both have writing things we want to do. And maybe we could like chat with each other. I don't know. So anyway, so we're trying trying it. It's only been two nights and already. How's it been so far? First night, great. Went to bed at like 8.30. Second night. Of course. <laughs> Uh, ben had to watch some sports game. So there was a little bit of cheating for that. But <laughs> so it's so made it one it's, night. We made, we made it. I, he made it one night. I did not. I put my phone down and I'm doing like, like trying to write every night. So yeah, so you. it's dumb that it's so hard. I love that we're trying it. And I love that Ben is like up for doing every dumb thing I I'm like, hey, let's do this thing. And he's like, okay. <laughs> okay. So I'll let you know how it goes. I'll let you know how it goes. I probably just uh, jinxed it because I talked about it on the podcast, but, you know. No, it's not a trip. You'll be fine. I'll be fine. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So join me. Won't, won't you, everybody? <laughs> we'll do. Well. Won't do. We'll do. We don't. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> Um, okay, for my something dumb and something I love, um, something dumb, um, you guys, like, in the middle of us recording last week, I got a text message from my mom, literally while we were recording, that said, um, your father has COVID, and Noah has COVID, I'm in the clear, but where the, the house is COVID, so my poor baby cousin Noah and my dad had COVID, Aww. um, and it was like, literally, you just had said, to take care of them. Yeah, you were like, everybody's getting COVID. And then you go, oh, my God, Sally. I know. <laughs> and, like, I cut that out because, you know, I'm blow up their spot right away. But, but yeah. Oh. It's just scary when it's your parents. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. But luckily, they're um, – I mean, your parents have had COVID. Yeah. Know, and my um, my parents now have had COVID. And it's – luckily, they were vaxxed and boosted. So it was like – it was hard, but it wasn't there. It was manageable, and they're on the men, so that's good. Good, good, good. good. Um, so that's good. And my something I love is um, 
Sally made me a mug, you guys. <laughs> I did I make you a mug. It. Even Louise came home from school and she was like, what's that? And I was like, Sally made it. And she goes, that's a good mug. <laughs> it is a good mug. <laughs> it's a great mug. <laughs> I am, I'm proud of that mug. And I'm, I am – I made it just – I, like, colored it. It was, like, made me think of you. my favorite color. I love it. It's the best. It's yeah. so great. So I just wanted to thank you so much for being such a wonderful friend. Oh, and thank also you for being a wonderful friend. A wonderful potter. Yeah. <laughs> well, you are welcome, and it was a joy to make it for you. Now I have to make something for you. How do you feel <laughs> about macaroni necklaces? Uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to make me some macaroni. I was like, I'll take well, that. That would probably be easier. Uh, uh, yeah, I love it. I would love anything you I'll made. have to craft you something. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. It's, it's fine. It, it, it's going to have pipe cleaners. It's going to have cotton balls. It's going to have those little googly eyes and like glue everywhere you're gonna fucking love it i'll be like it's- <laughs> oh, it sounds 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 right in my alley i it's hope it's wearable taped on, a, on a cardboard <laughs> I'll put it up in my office um awesome oh, amazing well you guys there's your episode i hope if you're near Asheville, come see us um yeah. this weekend february 12th at, at Asheville beauty academy Asheville beauty academy at the Asheville beauty academy we'd love to see you um also you can hit us up we're on all the socials we're at dumb love podcast you can Email us at dumblove at gmail.com. Check out our merch on our website. Uh, we have our Happy Town merch and our regular Dumb Love merch. We'd love for you to, um, you know, show support for the pod. It's uh, all at our website, which is dumblovepodcast.com. And rate and review and tell a friend. We'd love that. Please do all of those things. And uh, don't forget to get out there and do something dumb for love. Dumb, da dum 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 dum